This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Why, God? You probably haven't ever suffered the same level of death and disease as Job, but you've probably turned to God in dismay through your own trials. We are all like Job, write Bill Kynes and Will Kynes in their new book, Wrestling with Job, Defiant Faith in the Face of Suffering, published by IVP Academic. We are, quote, engaged in a mysterious cosmic battle as every day our faith is put to the test and God himself is honored when we trust, obey, and worship him as the great and glorious God that he is, end quote. Bill Kynes is a TGC council member and until recently served as the longtime senior pastor at Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in Annandale, Virginia. His son, Will, is associate professor of biblical studies at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. He has written extensively on the book of Job and wisdom and suffering in the Hebrew Bible. Both of them earned their PhDs from Cambridge University. Their book, Wrestling with Job, combines the academic expertise of Will with the homiletical insights of Bill. I've really never read anything like it or quite like it before. Uh, They find in Job real faith that holds us together when it feels like our world is falling apart. Defiant faith in the face of suffering takes our anguished questions to God, they write, because he cares for us. Job knows that God is good. That's why he can't make sense of this evil that has befallen him. Uh, The Kinds duo writes this, Following Job's example, glorifying God as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death means taking one's experience of God's forsakenness directly to its source, God himself. It doesn't mean giving up God's goodness or power, but it may mean holding God to those standards of his own character and grappling in the darkness, as Jacob did, Genesis 32, until the sun begins to rise. That is a real faith. End quote. Love that line. Bill and Will join me now on Gospel Bound to discuss whether Job is an example or warning, the difference between lament and grumbling, the problem of God as the author of evil, and more. Bill, Will, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Good to be here. Thank you, Colin. Pleasure to be with you, Colin. All right. Will, how do you get to a point where you say, I want to spend my life studying Job? It really started for me uh, after I graduated from college. I moved to Kenya where I was working in a church for about five months. And while I was there, I got really sick, as sick as I've ever been in my life. uh, And I couldn't even leave the house. And so I had a a week where um, some nice uh, missionaries allowed me to stay in their apartment. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll read through Job. And I was feeling kind of Job-like during that time. And I'd read Job before, but I had never really had the life experience for it to connect with me personally. And 
as I read that book, I was just shocked by what I found there because I, it was asking exactly the kinds of questions that I was asking. You know, why God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Uh, but it wasn't providing the answers that I expected from the Bible, and particularly the fact that we. Job, yes, he's faithful and all that at the beginning of the book, but then the kinds of ways that he talks to God is not what I expected in the Bible. And then God's response to Job uh, is not what I expected <laughs> from God. Uh, you know, it's not the like warm and cuddly kind of God that we may often be tempted to think of. Uh, so coming out of that experience, uh, and I did get better, uh, but I was just fascinated by the book. And so that led to going on to seminary and then going on to do my PhD and deciding to do my PhD on Job. And the thing is that spending three years during my PhD, I don't feel like I've answered all the questions of Job. I mean, it just, the more I dig into it, the more questions I have and the more ways that it's helping me to think uh, spiritually about the nature of God and what it means to relate to God. Uh, and one other thing I'd say is that after finishing my PhD, I had a serious back injury, which for two years left me in pretty constant pain. Uh, and I feel like I learned even more about the book of Job during that time uh, when I was going through pain myself than I did even when I tried to read every article and book written on Job during my PhD. And so that's one of the amazing things about this book is that it connects with our lives. We're all at some point going to face suffering. Uh, and it speaks to us in the midst of that, but it also challenges us in the midst of that as well. Uh, Bill, I still think there's got to be some point where a dad says, son, have you ever considered Philippians? Perhaps? That's right. Rejoice <laughs> always. Shouldn't that be our motto? But... <laughs> I mean, it is true that, you know, people say, if you really want to understand Job, like I was just saying, you, then you have to suffer. So I did, um, I have done some work on Proverbs, and I think to understand Proverbs, you really have to be successful. So I'm hoping that, you know, that changes my life trajectory a bit. <laughs> We can hope for that, Will. We can hope for that. Now, Bill, here's here's the big question, uh, and one of the questions you guys address in the book is: Job an example or a warning of how we should relate to God? Well, you could say almost cynically, uh, Job is an encouragement because I doubt if many people suffer as much as Job, and so you can say, well, at least I'm not suffering as badly as Job. <laughs> Seriously, uh, Seriously. I, I think you have to see Job as an example simply because James in the New Testament does that. He points to the prophets, the suffering of the prophets, and then he points to, to Job. Um, and so I think we have biblical warrant for looking at Job as an example. And I think rightly understood, uh, Job is seen to be in the right, in the way he speaks. And I think uh, uh, we, we contend in uh, 42.6, a contested verse, that Job doesn't repent for the way that he speaks to God. Uh, no, it, I, I don't think that's the right way of understanding that. And, and Job shows us that you can speak honestly with God with the way you're feeling. And there's a very pious Job in Job 1 and 2, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But that's not all there is to life in this fallen world. And I think people know that, they recognize that, and and in that way, Job is an example of what it means to grapple with the pains and trials of this fallen world and maintain a real faith, which in some ways becomes a defiant faith, as it challenges God to, to say, what's going on here? Uh, meet with me, explain this to me, somehow reveal yourself to me. And that's the experience that many people have. And I think when I uh, 
preached on Job, I think people were first curious, what is he going to say about this book? But then I think they found it freeing because I think many people can relate to that experience uh, of what is going on here, Lord? Yes, I'm supposed to be the Job of, of Job 1, blessed be the name of the Lord, whatever happens, but that's not how I feel. And I think people were encouraged to know, yes, wrestling with God is appropriate and can be helpful. You mentioned some of the argument about whether or not Job repents, but there is no moment when God tells Job to repent. Is that correct? Right. There's no point at which uh, God, uh, in, in some ways, absolves him of sin after the supposed repentance. So I think all of those point to the fact that that's not really what's going on there. Very interesting. Well, it's, I wonder if sometimes it's too easy to dunk on Job's friends. Um, as you point out, the only New Testament quotation of Job cites Eliphaz. It's Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Uh, my broader question is, why do you think we need 24 chapters of back and forth between Job and his friends about whether or not he sinned? Yeah. So, I mean, there are two things there. One is, what value do the friends play in the book? And one way that I like to think about them, it's a bit like, you know, if you put your clothes in a washing machine, they're not going to get clean unless you have some kind of agitator in there right? That's that thing in the middle of the washing machine. And not only that, but also like those granules or whatever that you put in with them that rub against the clothes. And that's what gets the dirt off. I think that the friends to some degree are like agitators uh, in that they give Job an opportunity to wrestle with them about the nature of his suffering. So that's one role that they play in the book. But in terms of not dunking too easily on Job's friends, for me, I think a lot of time spent with this book has actually, the friends have been a really valuable um, lesson to me. When I start to put myself in their shoes in the way that they are encountering and experiencing Job's suffering, uh, I realize that actually I fall into a lot of the same kinds of responses to suffering myself. I mean, what's going on with them is they're seeing that this righteous friend of theirs has suffered in some terrible way. And the fear is, if it can happen to them, then it can happen to me. I mean, if it can happen to Job, right, then it can happen to right. them as the friends. And right. I mean, I noticed this in my own life during COVID in that, you know, you would hear stories of like a young person who would die from COVID. And I noticed this happening in my psychology where I would listen out, well, what was their comorbidity, right? What was the complication that that person has that I don't have? Yeah, what did they so that do I wrong? Can feel, or, yeah, what yeah. did they do wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So that I can feel safe. You know, maybe they never wore their mask or maybe they didn't get the vaccine, whatever it is. But what's going on there is we're trying to create a category that we don't fit in that that person fits in. And so we feel safe from the potential suffering that they have. And that's exactly what Job's friends are doing to him when they are charging him with some kind of unrighteousness or sin that must have brought about this suffering in his life. They're trying to put him in a different category than they are in. Uh, so I think it's wrong to dunk on the friends because we, we do the same thing all the time. That's why blaming the victim is so common. Uh, and so the friends are... Uh, they're a great challenge to us in terms of how we respond to those who are suffering around us. Part of the message of Job is found in the literary form, the actual way that it's written. 
And the fact that it goes on and on and on and on with this dialogue, this debate, is part of the message that dealing with suffering in, in a person's life is not easy. There are no easy answers. There's no quick fixes. It takes time. It's a journey. And I think the very literary form of Job in its length and this kind of dialogue reflects that. It reflects the kind of thing that goes on on a person's head. Uh, as you're wrestling with these things, you're saying these things to yourself. So you've got your, the friends are, are speaking to yourself as you're wrestling with these things. So I think the literary form of it uh, reflects some of the message. Well, that's helpful. That's very helpful. Bill, this is another thing that came up as I'm looking through it. And there are so many different lessons that you guys have pointed out that we can pull from Job. But I'm wondering, is this, is this, a, is this a model? Uh, for how we should, um, is this model for how we should or should not counsel our grieving friends? You know, what, what do the friends do wrong? Uh, I mean, the, the friends are, are there, which is, which is one thing. Right. You got to commend the friends for coming. They, they, and they don't say anything for a long time, right? Yes. They, they perform Shiva. They're mm -hmm. grieving with him at the ash heap. And uh, so you got to commend the friends for that. But then in the end, it seems as though, and I, I love uh, Christopher Ashe's illustration, the difference between an armchair theologian and a wheelchair sufferer. Hmm. Uh, and they end up being armchair theologians trying to address the head of Job, and they miss his heart altogether. They don't empathize with him. They don't, uh, they're not sensitive to his emotional state. Uh, they... they they miss the point of what's going on in his life. And I think they need more sensitivity, more empathy, compassion, patience, even humility as they're addressing him, because they do not know the mind of God in this situation. They get it wrong. And, and I think sometimes uh, we need to be careful that we think we know what God is up to in a person's life or even our own life. And, and there just needs to be humility there. And then, Ultimately, I think for us, point people to the ultimate answer, which in the book of Job is God himself. So to pray for people and pray that they may be pointed toward God in the midst of their suffering is uh, ultimately and, and finally the most important thing we can do. It, it seems that I often pick up a response to when it comes to grieving, people saying, no, don't, don't bring your theology to grieving. Um, just be quiet. Don't say anything. And first of all, that, that does seem to miss that some people actually want to talk through these wrestlings. They, they, want, they, they want that. And second, it, it seems as though this book does show us that both. I mean, there's an interplay between both. There is the ministry of presence. Um, and, and yeah, Clearly, as you pointed out, the friends are not a good example. But the reason we have this in the in the canon is, at least in some part, because it does lead to theological conclusions about about God. Um, and one thing I want to come back to, of course, is the overall view that ultimately what this is about is Job's relationship with God. Well, and to your point, Colin, we do have to bring theology to situations of suffering, but there's a difference in the way that the friends do it and the way that Job does it. So the friends, they have such a small view of God that they have to attack Job to fit him into their small view of God. But Job has such a big view of God 
right? This is a good and sovereign and just God. He's actually willing to attack God himself uh, in order to pursue that justice, to call God to live according to what he has revealed himself to be. Hmm. Well, that, that's a good segue here, Will. Um, one of the things I loved in seminary was being introduced to the concept of the history of interpretation. I took a class with Bob Yarbrough on the history of New Testament interpretation. Made me think here, my goodness, the history of interpretation of Job must be fascinating. Um, it, it certainly, uh, my guess would be that earlier generations didn't have the same level or the same kinds of theodicy questions. So as you were reading exhaustively everything that had been written about Job, were earlier generations more likely than ours to say, I mean, whatever God ordains is right? What questions were they trying to answer from this book? Yeah. So, I mean, the book, it raises so many questions that, you know, they're trying to answer lots of kinds of questions from it. I wrote an article um, for the Scottish Journal of Theology a few years back where I traced some of the most prominent Christian readers of Job across history. So people like Gregory the Great and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and then Bart and Kierkegaard. And what was fascinating is they all had different ways of understanding Job. But in the end, all of them said, well, Job did something wrong. Job did not, in the end, speak rightly of God. Uh, and so there is this consistent tendency, particularly in Christian interpretation. Jewish interpretation is a little bit broader on this, but in Christian interpretation to say, you know, each of these interpreters, they had a different way of trying to explain what Job was doing. And, and you know, Calvin, for example, says that Job had a good case, but he carried it out ill, right? Improperly, not well. Uh, but all of them in the end say, well, but you just can't talk to God that way. <laughs> You know, they're uncomfortable with the way that Job interacts with God. Uh, and as we've already kind of alluded to, that's not the way that we understand what's going on here. But you can understand the motivation there, right? Which is, um, if you have this very high view of God's sovereignty and his goodness and justice, then why why would you wrestle with God in this kind of way? We just submit to God, Uh but there is a there's a bigger tradition here across the Bible of God desiring people to bring their suffering to Him, uh, and to relationally work through that suffering with God. So God entering into our suffering with us. Uh, that I think we we read Job in that broader context, and we can appreciate more of what's happening here in the relationship between Job and God. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Now, Bill, you preach through Job. It's one of the things I would commend people uh, for their use in this book is you're not going to be able to tackle this book as as if you were expositing Philippians. Yeah, your your line by line exegesis is gonna it's gonna bog down uh, in those 24 chapters. I have to imagine. Uh, How did your congregation respond when you preached Job? Um, and and including how do they respond when you announce, hey, we're heading into a blank week uh, series on Job? Well, um, I was over 30 years in my preaching ministry before I even attempted. So maybe so maybe Job. not the first series that you preach uh, in a church. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I was faced with that challenge. How do you preach this book? First of all, it's very long. Uh, for, and then it's mostly poetry, which is a challenge in itself, with all the imagery and so forth. Uh, and then 
a lot of it are the friends who, who don't speak the truth about God. So how do you how do you expound that in a helpful or way? Or the full truth about God. I mean, yeah. it's partial truth. Some of what exactly. they say is how true. Do you, how do you parse right. what's true yeah. and what's not and what they say? Yeah. So uh, it took a long time to kind of figure out how would I do this? And, you know, working with Will was a great joy as we wrestled with this. And he was a great help as we interacted. And so I divided it up and ended up with like 10 sermons that took us basically through the book. And I, I wanted to respect the literary quality of the book. It wasn't simply thematic. I, I kind of walked through the book uh, because, again, I think the literary form is important in how in, in the message that's being communicated. Uh, but I, was, I, I walked through it in 10 sermons, which wasn't too long, but it was a kind of a Lenten journey, began in January, I thought about doing it in the fall, but that would, uh, you know, we'd end up in the holidays, and who wants to be in Job in the holidays? Um, <laughs> Christmas with Job. <laughs> you know, January to Easter, and it was a kind of a journey mm. that then led to Easter, and, and then culminated in kind of how, is, how do we see Jesus in Job? And there are lots of important lessons there. I mean, I think people were first at first curious because they hadn't. I mean, I'd been at the church 30 years. I'd never preached through Job. I'd mentioned Job, obviously, but never preached through it. How is he going to deal with this? What's this What's this going to look like? A lot of people have questions about Job, obviously. So I think there was a good deal of curiosity. But then the kinds of feedback I got were, you know, I can relate to Job. I can relate to those kinds of feelings. I've been through some tough times. And I have felt like Job, but I was afraid to express it because Christians aren't supposed to be like that. Christians are supposed to be joyful all the time. And I think they added guilt to their suffering as a, as a consequence. So I think there was a sense of freeing to think, yeah, I can be honest with God as Job was and not be, not be disrespectful for God. And I think, I think that was one of the main things. And then I think ultimately was just a bigger picture of who God is. And I think that's part of what it means to fear God, that God is God and I am not, and that's a good thing. And, and Job, the book does not explain suffering, and in some ways it says it's inexplicable. God doesn't explain it. What does it mean that God allows Job to suffer for no reason? It's inexplicable. But there is a sense in which God is so great, and ultimately we trust so good that God has his reasons uh, that we must trust. And that's where we end up. And I think a lot of people were encouraged by that message. Well, this stood out to me in the book, the difference that you guys identify between lament and grumbling. That was very helpful, especially the way you handled that within the Hebrew Bible, the differences between what we see in Job and, say, um, and say Exodus. Um, just explain that for listeners, because I, I think we probably are pretty prone to conflating them, probably for the reasons that, that Bill just related, that we're expecting Christians are supposed to be happy all the time. Therefore, anybody who's raising complaint, a la biblical lament, it sounds to them like, sounds to us like grumbling. Yeah. And it's a subtle difference. And so you can understand why people can get confused, but it's a difference that we can recognize. I mean, you can recognize it if you have kids the difference between grumbling and a complaint that comes from a place of faith in you as a parent, right? And trust, right? There's a difference, but often the actual words may sound almost exactly the same, right? Um, but some of the examples 
the prime example, I think, of the way that lament or what we are calling defiant faith plays out would be Genesis 18.25, where Abraham says to God, so God is contemplating destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is arguing, well, but what if there are righteous people in the city? And, and Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so, that's a complaint to God that's coming from a position of deep belief that God is indeed just, right? You're going to live and expecting God to live according to that commitment to his justice. But the examples like in Exodus that you point to, this is the people, they've just been brought out of Egypt. Uh, and they say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, right? That comes from a lack of faith in who God is, which is shocking to us when we think about what they, these people have just seen God do. So, the di distinction there is where the complaint comes from. Does it come from a deep set belief in who God is, or does it come from a lack of faith in who God is? Um, and so, what we think Job is doing in the book of Job is he is complaining to God from the context of that deep faith that God is indeed good and just. And if he can just be convinced that Job's situation is not evidence of that goodness and justice, that God will demonstrate that justice better through restoring him, then he will change his ways. He will intervene on Job's behalf. You know, I, I think I have the personality and the thought process to connect with you guys and and enjoy the challenge of Job. And yet there were still so many things. I mean, even like that pretty simple distinction between lament and grumbling that I hadn't thought about and so clearly as you guys lay out in this book. And another thing that came out to me in the book is how you guys identify that Job is less concerned with losing his money and his family. And I thought, that, boy, isn't that fascinating? That's, he doesn't talk about that. He does not talk about that. He's less concerned with losing his money and his family than he is in restoring his relationship with God. And maybe the, that's the whole point, that it strikes me as very countercultural for me and probably for a lot of others in the relatively affluent West today. Uh, Bill, I'm wondering as a pastor, how do you try to convey this sensibility to modern Christians for whom the felt need of a relationship with God being restored is probably less than the thought of, oh, what would happen if I lost my whole family and my health and my riches? And I'm not talking about in health and wealth congregations. I'm just talking about suburban ones like you and I are in. Yeah, I was reflecting on that a bit. And part of it is, uh, why do we want money? What does family mean to us? Why is it important? And when you probe beneath the surface, what are we really looking for? We're looking for security. We're looking for safety. We're looking for significance. We're looking for our place in the world. Uh, we're looking for things that these are means rather than ends when you really look at it. And in fact, God is the end of all of those things. Where do we ultimately find our security and safety? Where do we ultimately find our meaning and significance? Where do we ultimately find our place in the world? And what we most want is to love and be loved. 
And often we think money will get us that or having a family will get us that. If I just find the right person to, you know, my soulmate, then I'll get that. But these are all kind of earthly versions of pointers to the deeper and final source of all of those things, which is yeah. God himself. Yeah, to be, to be known and loved by the same people. Yes, yes. Ultimately by God, but yes. to be known and loved by the same people. Yes, right yes. So I think it's, it's helping people to appreciate those things are good, absolutely. There's nothing bad about them, but they're not ultimate. And the ultimate is found in God himself. Hmm. Now, Will, this another question that stood out, um, as Bill referenced earlier, the questions aren't answered. Um, not, not in the way that we would perhaps expect. So if his questions are not answered, at least in the way we as readers would expect, how can he then be satisfied with God? And it's not, and then that happens before his riches and his fam. I mean, and this new family and and everything else. His health are restored. Um, again, perhaps something that maybe it's just me, but I think probably others are in my boat as well. There. Yeah. So you see Jesus do this all the time. In that, people bring questions to him, and he basically says, "You're asking the wrong question." Yeah, the wrong questions. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to answer the right question for you. And I think yeah. that's what happens with Job. So Job's question is really his fundamental question is answered. And that question is, can I trust God in the midst of my suffering? And when God appears to Job, he doesn't say, well, you know, there was this wager with the Satan and that's the reason why all of this happened, <laughs> right? He doesn't say any of that stuff, but yeah. what he communicates through this this amazing description of his creative power and his love for his creation and his power over even the monstrous and chaotic elements of his creation is that he is indeed sovereign. He is in control of what Job is facing, but he also is meticulously caring for his creation. And so if he cares for the baby ravens, for the ostrich egg, then clearly he cares for Job. And, and jo Jesus picks up on that same kind of idea, right? That God cares for the lilies, he lilies cares for the, the sparrows. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So clearly he cares for you. Uh, and so when Job responds in 42 and then two and following, he's acknowledging that he's learned these things from God, right? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, and that's what leads to verse six, well, verse five, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, right? There's that restoration of the relationship and he's understanding God in a new and deeper way that leads to in verse six, the way we understand it is something like, and therefore I set aside my mourning and I am consoled or I'm comforted on dust and ashes or in dust and ashes. You know, this is every word in this verse is debated, but that Job is saying, I receive the consolation, the comfort that you have offered me, God, uh, through appearing to me in the powerful way that you have. And I think it's helpful to see that uh, dust and ashes is a, is a form of ritual mourning. Mm -hmm. And it was the job of friends to enable the mourner to be released from that state of mourning. And these friends fail to do that. Uh, and and only God in the end could do it. 
And he does it, and, and Job is then able to re-enter into normal human life and uh, escape from this state of mourning. Mourning, but also repentance. Is that, I mean, with dust and ashes, right? Uh, so it can be used in that kind of context as well. But I wonder how much the mourning is really the heart of what's going yeah, on there. I think that's, and I repentance think that's and mourning are often intertwined with one another. Uh, but in the context of Job, yeah. um, he, he certainly doesn't have any repentance at the beginning of the book when he initiates this process. Uh, so that that sets the meaning of those that imagery for the book, I think. It, it, there's an interesting case of Jacob in the Old Testament yeah. who refused to be comforted mm-hmm. when he thought that he had lost his son. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. There's a lot of different kinds of mourning, right? I mean, Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance, but it's also mourning, right? I mean, David is mourning the con- his sin and the consequences mm-hmm. of his sin. So you can have a different kind of dust and ashes in that case. But you're exactly right. There is no evidence that that Job would have done. I mean, that's certainly not where it was instigated. It was instigated precisely because he is a righteous man, not not because... In David's situation, he was man of God's own heart, but also very sinful. All right, so Bill, I'm going to leave. You're the elder statesman here among <laughs> us. You tip your cap. Uh, I'm saving the hardest question for you. I, I, this, this is one of the thorniest things I think anywhere. I think consistently when I'm teaching the Bible, especially Old Testament. Um, I have a hardest time with this, and and some of my, um, you know, I've got a well-worn compatibilism. I can handle the cross. I can handle Peter's sermon at, at Pentecost. I can handle Stephen's sermons. Like it just, I can handle Joseph's story. You intend it for evil, but God intended it for good. But there are some other passages that seem to border on God as the author Himself of evil. Job forty-two eleven is one of the examples you guys cite here. It's not the only one, though. We could multiply them. Jeremiah 44, 2, Ezekiel 14, 22. Of course, we're talking the context of the exile, which is one of the clearest examples of this, along with, I'd say, Saul as well as Pharaoh. Um, how do you explain this? How, how, did, you, how did you preach this? Um, we, we got, I mean, Scripture tells us God cannot be the author of evil, but wow, these passages seem pretty straightforward. Well, it's interesting, and some people try to get God out of it, even in the book of Job, and say, oh, God didn't do anything wrong. It was uh, the Satan, and it was the Sabaeans, and it was the, the natural forces, so God is off the hook. But that's not right, because the whole book is about the whole point. Job arguing with God. God yeah. is ultimately responsible. And I, and I think we have to understand that God is sovereign. And nothing happens apart from the ultimate will of God. Now, we use the language God allowing, he permits, permissive will, and right. so on. And I think right. that reflects the notion that God uses secondary moral actors in creation that have real moral responsibility. And here's what I think is most important. For an act to be evil, it must be performed by a moral actor with an evil intent. And an evil mm. ah, okay. And, and by yeah. definition, God cannot have an evil intent or an evil purpose. Now, God allows evil. God is evil is a part of God's world. And uh, sometimes in the book of Job, 
people use the uh, divine speeches related to a behemoth and, and, you know, the way God allows these apparently evil creatures to exist. Uh, but they're always under his control. And that's part of the message as well. So um, I, I think when you understand this notion of, yes, there's evil in the world, and that is perpetrated by evil actors. But God is above that. He's over that. And God's intent in, in anything is never evil with never with an evil purpose. So it's not just the consequences of the action that are evil, but the intent yes, behind yes. them. That's, that's and the God, we, by definition, cannot have an evil yes, intent. An evil intent, an evil purpose. Yeah. And, and, and that's ultimately the confidence that we have. Whatever evil things we experience, God is the great alchemist. God is the, the God who can turn the lead into gold. And he will, and that's the great hope that we have, that God can transform the evil experiences that we have and somehow turn them to his glory and ultimately for our good. Hmm. That's a beautiful place to end. Um, I hope I hope a lot of people read this book, and I hope they determine to preach Job and to study it together as a church, as small groups, um, even just personally, um, I can't think of many things that would be more rewarding. And um, it may be counterintuitive, but I think with your guys' help, they'll be able to do it. Uh, we've been talking about wrestling with Job, defiant faith in the face of suffering with Bill Kynes and Will Kynes. Check out their new book from IVP Academic. Bill, Will, thank you. Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.